If this is Austin, I still love you. childhood. This is Emmett Shelton talking, and this is about August the 25th, 1975. I'm in Austin, Texas. I was born on February the 12th, 1905, at the southwest intersection of Wilson Street and West Live Oak Street. There was a little bitty hole there, and uh, it uh, stayed there long enough for me perhaps to see it after I got big enough to remember, although uh, I'm not sure about that. But at the time, the block that lies just north and east of us was occupied, the entire block, and maybe two blocks, was occupied by Mr. W.D. Miller's dairy. He had a beautiful big two-story home and had a winding staircase that we used to slide up and down the banisters. And then uh, he had a cistern and collected water off the roof, and it was inside the gallery uh, of the house. And he had a big, huge barn that was right across, catacombed across the street from where I was born. And, and uh, I don't remember much about that until we, until I got a little bigger and we moved off up to where about 211 West Live Oak is now. We moved a block east of there when, uh, during my early remembrances. But Mr. Miller had this barn right on the corner there of Wilson and West Live Oak on the northeast corner. And he had his lot. He had a dairy barn. And he uh, had his milk separators. And had a big uh, board fence around the around the uh, lot down there in the corner, and the barn was right next to it. And I remember he had two big poles, and, uh, posts with a wire on them, and he had his bull for his, uh, that he had for his dairy there with a ring in his nose, and the bull was tied to this uh, chain, this uh, cable that went from one post to the other, and to give the bull a little chance to walk up and down between the posts. But he had this ring in his nose, and he was pretty well hobbled. Uh, he couldn't get away, and I guess they'd use him when the cows need servicing. And for years, he had Clarence Williams to deliver the groceries. That's back in the days when they'd order your groceries in the mornings, and if you didn't order them, he'd call you on the phone and ask you what you wanted. And Clarence Williams was a colored boy and one of our very finest friends, and, and he was one time picked as one of the most worthy citizens of Austin. He was a very close friend of Judge Black's, as I stayed on further tapes here, and just a very fine man all the way around. But that little was that for a while, and then when he sold out to Tom Caldwell, he took Clarence with him to when he organized the, or when he became manager of the Norwood Building, now the Capital National Bank Building. He was a close personal friend of Mr. O. Norwood, and so when Mr. Norwood built the building about 1927 or 8 along in there, he asked Dudley to take over the management of it, and Dudley took Clarence over there with him. And Dudley stayed as manager of that, of that building for a number of years and, and went over and uh, become manager of the Perry Brooks building. But then the other two children were Irene and Myrtle Miller, two daughters. They were both fine singers, and I remember they'd uh, we'd go over there and they'd sing quite a little bit and had a nice home for it. Now that was the general situation on the, on the Miller family. Mr. W.D. Miller, of course, later became sheriff of Travis County when he quit the dairy business and sold out to the Cedric family, and I'll talk about them later. But now we'll get back to the night that I was born, or the day that I was born, in 1905. Mother says it was snow all over the ground, it was freezing, and of course the only 
means of conveyance then was by horse and buggy. And so I was the fifth of, of, of six boys. And uh, it became, of course, Mama knew when she was going to have me. She knew she was in labor. And, and that was in the early hours of the night on February the 11th. And it was freezing and ice all over the ground. So Papa knew that uh, I, my mom was going to have another baby. And so he got in his buggy and, and horse and took him to Polk and John E. Polk was four and a half years old and John E. Was, was six and a half. And he carted both of them up and took them off up to the Millers and, and left them there at the Miller house. And both of them slept on one cot, an old folding cot. And, and uh, Polk was scared. He's a little fella. And they, we, he told about it. Of course, it's been a matter of family history, and he told neither one of them got out of bed. But he was a little frightened about being away from home. And then Papa, I don't know what happened to Edgar and Earl, where they were. They probably stayed at home somewhere. Anyway, Papa went on down to try to get Dr. Petway. And he was the only doctor in South Austin, and he lived down on East Monroe. And uh, for some reason, he missed Dr. Petway and went to get Dr. Watt, Dr. Will Watt's uh, father over in Austin. And, and uh, by the time he got back, uh, he already had a son. That was me. And when I was born, well, I, Mama was there alone by herself, didn't have a midwife or anything. And she remembered the other little boys all cried when they were born, and I wasn't crying. And she had heard that sometimes children are born with uh, the cord around their necks, and that they choked to death before if they didn't have some help. So that was my situation. I did have the cord around my, my neck, and she by herself removed the cord and then performed the whole birth, and, and I was born at, uh, and, and was alive because of her knowledge and because she was a fine Spartan woman. And, of course, on account of that, I've always felt like uh, she thought more of me than she did anybody else in the world, and, of course, most boys do feel that their mother feel that way about her. So when Papa come back, he... I had a, another son, a number five. I was named after uh, Judge R.E. Emmett White, who had been sheriff and friend of Papa's for years. And, and, uh, and he later, I don't know whether he's mayor of the city of Austin, I heard that he was, and I know he was elected county judge at one time. Uh, then I was also named after the Hughes boys, Calvin Hughes and Ellie Hughes. I don't know which one of them Papa intended to name after, but both of them were his friends. Mr. Calvin Hughes lived out on the Bluff Springs Road there close to uh, the Wanslow place, and I think that Papa had picked cotton on his place when he was a young fellow. They had all helped him uh, when he started practicing law and quit teaching school. They made it possible for him to buy groceries one way or another, either giving him money that he didn't, uh, that he wasn't born or something of that nature. But then uh, I, sometime between, uh, oh, 1905 and I guess 1909, well, uh, we uh, moved the little old shanty that we had there, a little old house that Papa and Mama was living in. They moved it off up to where 211 Live Oak Street is now. There used to be a great big live oak tree right in the middle of the street uh, out uh, uh, there on Live Oak by our driveway, and later on they cut it down. But Papa was, as long as he lived, he maintained the, the uh, vigilance over the tree and wouldn't let him cut it down. And... Um, uh, my first memory becomes as of the time of moving up to the other place. I don't remember the house at all in which I was born. But when I was a little fellow there, about the time Harold was born, I guess, a little after that, Mama had a rocking chair, I remember very well. And, and uh, she had us, Harold was two and a half years younger than me about, and he was born on June the 7th, 1908. 
1907 it was, 1907. And so uh, Mama made made all of our clothes. She had little rompers she made for, for Harold and me, and we didn't have underclothes. I didn't know what that was in those days, but we had these little old romp- rompers, and Mama had a rocking chair, remember? And in the evening, well, in the afternoon, well, she had rocked me to sleep. I remember that well enough, so I must not have been more than and three or four years old, she'd probably put Harold to sleep with a sugar tit of some kind. And then, because we didn't have little baby beds in those days, and we didn't have screens on the windows, and we didn't have any. They might have had some kind of refrigeration, but I doubt it very seriously. But uh, I remember Mama would sing the song when she'd rock me to sleep, Silver Threads Among the Gold. And I've always remembered that and cherished that song because of that. It's one of my earliest memories. It was while we lived in this old house there, and I guess it was even before we was building the new house at 211, the two, two-story house, because that was built about 1912, 11 or 12. But I remember the, the first airplane came into Austin, and, and uh, Johnny and Polk and I all climbed up on top of our old one-story house and sat there on the tin roof for quite a little while one afternoon waiting for this airplane to, to fly down the railroad track. They it, it, it didn't have any navig- navigation instruments, so... He was going to fly from Austin to San Antonio, and they'd fly about 200 feet above the ground and going to follow the railroad track, which was over between just uh, parallel, where it is right now, going to San Antonio. So we figured if we got on top of the house, we could look over and see this airplane flying, which we did. We saw the airplane going from Austin to San Antonio. I don't know what year that was, but that must have been before 1912 or right out about 1912. Now I'll tell some of the humorous instances of our childhood making... Uh, Know the fact that the children have been about the same for the last hundred years anyway, and they played the same games and had the same thoughts and feelings and misgivings. And one tale comes to my mind: well, Edgar and Earl, of course, were my older brothers, and they were my heroes. And, and uh, they were, and I guess Edgar must have been about twelve the year I was born. So he was in high school by the time I was big enough to to uh, remember it very much. And so was Earl, but. Uh, we had an old, the old streetcar line was built out in South Austin somewhere along about 1912, 14, somewhere along in there, and it dead ended at, uh, oh, Mar- uh, right there about Mar- Mary Street, West Mary Street, or where Mary Street crossed Congress Avenue. And uh, we'd, be, we'd go to town, we'd walk down there and get on the old trolley line and go to town. Uh, one winter, uh, shortly after the streetcar line had uh, been built, well, Earl uh, got an old Mackinac, coat. Papa got him one for, for winter to wear to school, and it had many colors all over it. The dogs would bark at him, and they said that the reason they barked at him was because of the loud colors in his coat. But there was a, a family of, of uh, people that named Goods who lived down on the east side of Congress Avenue there between Mary Street and the street north of it, and they had one little boy named Curtis Cletus Good. It was about old Polk's age, and he was a mean little devil, and they had another older boy about about Johnny's or Earl's age, and, and so Cletus would get out and he'd throw rocks at people that get off the streetcar line. And so one day he's hiding in the brush and he throwed and hit Earl with a rock and Earl had this old coat on and Earl run him down and gave, gave him a good butt kicking and of course that created quite an incident and the good boys were scared of Earl. Earl was a pretty good fighter and he, uh, but they sent word to him that they was gonna, they gonna have old Charlie Houston. Charlie Houston was one of their South Austin friends and neighbors out there, and Charlie was pretty muscular, and he had a reputation of being a fighter, so he's going to whip Earl on the uh, uh, high school grounds. 
and uh, Dr. J. E. Pierce, I believe, was a, a superintendent, was a principal of schools in Austin High School. Then he's the same Dr. Pierce that I had a hundred airheads with. Anyway, Earl fixed him up a little old tub handle, like what used it for brass knucks. He's laying for old Charlie Houston, and Charlie's laying for him. They don't need to have a cutting or a beating of some kind. So Earl put some tape around the the inside of the handle of this this tub handle, and and he could uh, put it over his fist, over his hand, and use it as sort of like say brass knucks. So they had a fight on the school grounds, and Earl cut Charlie up pretty bad with this with this uh, tub handle, and tucked uh, several stitches in it, and they had to fire Earl out of high school. He was kicked out for a while, I don't know how, how long. It gave him a reputation of being a fighter, and that's uh, perhaps what he wanted. There weren't too many kids out in South Austin in those days. I remember the Lewis Krabs lived out there, and the Krabs boys, and the Wise boys, Homer and Foster and Oscar, and, and then the Albright, uh, Frank Albright, and then the Barnhart boys, but and the Blockers, Joe Blocker was living out there, and uh, now, this is the age about Earl and Edgar and Johnny and Polk, so they didn't have many friends. They uh, And there wasn't very much habitation between well, Live Oak Street and the Davenham Institute at that time. And so Papa had been on the uh, the board of directors at the Davenham Institute, and he built uh, one of the buildings down there. And he knew all the faculty, and he had taken an interest in it. And so um, uh, we became acquainted with the, the, the children that were the, of the faculty members. And Edgar had a boy named Vivian Taylor about his age, and Earl had a boy named George Blattner about his age, and the uh, other Blattner boys, there was, I forget their names now, Pat, Black, I don't know, no, not only this Pat, but Pat was not one of the Petway, Petway boys. Richard and uh, Dick Petway were, were out in South Austin too, but the Blattner boys uh, on Saturday mornings, well, uh, about every other Saturday morning, well, that, that group would come off up and visit the Shelton's at our house, and and then on the other Saturdays, well, we'd go down and, and visit, or the older boys would go down to the Deaf and Dumb Institute, and, and uh, they'd slide up and down those old fire escapes they had. They had these old revolving sort of round towers, and you could slide down those on a sack. We'd get a grass sack, and we'd, we'd uh, practice uh, sliding down those fire escapes that went into each of the buildings. That's where They didn't have these steps outside the buildings those days. So the occasion I'm going to tell you about, well, uh, Edgar had Vivian Taylor visiting him at, at the house, and... And Earl had George Blattner, and, of course, David Blattner was about Johnny's age, and we had about 10, 12 kids out there. And in those days, we didn't have inside plumbing, of course, and I don't believe we even had a washstand inside. We had, we washed on in a pan on the gallery and uh, had a bucket of water out there. And, of course, our old stove was just a wood stove to cook in, and we might have had a little old uh, tin stove to heat the house someplace. But uh, we had an old two-hole privy that was... Uh, Built right on the edge of the gal- on the edge of the yard, and and it emptied back the back end of it was back end of the horse lot, and where the hogs had free run and the chickens had it was all wide open. And it wasn't very much in the way of a sanitary convenience, but that's the way people did in those days. We didn't have a hole dug, and we didn't know anything about lime, but that was our old true hole privy, and it was a uh, quite a work of art for those days. And uh, Edgar and Earl had gotten had a game worked out to where when they had visitors. Well, whichever one of their, their visitors, if it was Edgar's friend, well, he got to pull the trick, and if it was Earl's friend, he got to pull the trick. And the trick was that the first one of the boys that had to go to the privy, well, the, uh, whichever one's friend it was, Edgar Earl, and he'd get a right to run around and get through the fence and take a stick and jab this old boy in the ass when he sat down on this two-hole privy. Well, it so happened that Vivian Taylor was the one that had to go first that morning, and we were all dying and waiting to see what, uh, what was going to happen, so... 
He was very modest. He he went in the door and he, we had a little old wire or something, a string to tie it from the inside so people couldn't run in on you and embarrass you. So Vivian got got through the door and Edgar couldn't wait. He grabbed the stick and he went through the fence and he ran around behind the privy, which was wide open. But he didn't know which hole Vivian was going to be sitting on. So he squatted down and looked up under the thing to see which hole Vivian's on so he could jab him in the butt with his stick. And when he did, Vivian had cut loose and hit him right in the face with a, a wad of crap. And that was very much uh, not that's not the way it's supposed to be played. And so we was all watching Edgar, of course, and, and he was very much embarrassed. And we all laughed and hollered and put on a big to-do, and Mama heard about it. And she come out the door and found out what was going on. She gave Edgar a whooping and run all the boys home. And that ended the playing that game for a while. Then we had uh, our different chores. Edgar was a milker in those days. He was the oldest one. He had to milk the cow, and Earl had to get the wood in. So Papa would have a load of wood hauled from somewhere by one of his clients or somebody, and it was stacked in the back, and we had an old saw rack back there and had one of these old buck saws. And uh, then Johnny and Polk would carry the wood in. That was there about that size, and I was too little to do anything much but squall and holler and complain and tattle on the rest of the big boys. So Earl was very smart, as I said. He, he made uh, all days in school when he went to school, and he just uh, didn't have to crack a book. He'd, he had a, a, a photographic memory. And that was probably his undoing because he had such a brilliant mind. And uh, so Earl conceived the idea on these Saturday mornings of, of playing police and robber. And uh, he'd saved up a little money, and he bought him a chain, of, an old chain of some kind, and a padlock. And he would be the policeman, and uh, we had a little old wooden pistol that we used, and, and wooden guns we'd carved out of wood and uh, with a knife or a hatchet, and so we'd start in the game. We'd all be the robbers, and Earl would be the policeman. And he'd run a while till he'd catch uh, one of the bigger boys, and he'd come and padlock him to this wood rack and make him saw his wood for him. Of course, uh, they didn't catch on to that for several years. That Earl was having it. He's he's getting a little bit more than pleasure out of the out of the game. He'd catch him and have his wood sawed up for the rest of the week by playing police and robber. While I'm on incidents involving Earl's life, or. Uh, remember after we moved into the big house, it must have been after 1912, that uh, there was an old man named Stone who owned the property just about where Highway 35 now crosses Riverside, where Riverside crosses 35, and there was, he had a, some pecan trees down in, in there about uh, that area, and uh, the boys in Fulmore School would go down in the afternoons and, and uh, after school and thrash some of his pecans. His old man lived quite a little ways from the uh, his house was quite a little ways from the grove, and they thought they could steal some of his pecans. That's what it amounted to. So Earl was the big boy, and he got up in the tree, and I, Johnny and Polk were there, I know, and I think Joe Blocker was there, and maybe the Steiner boys, Berndine. Uh, Berndine's probably older than Earl, but Casper might have been there. He'd, if he'd have been invited, he'd have been there. But anyway, there was quite a few of the South Austin boys down there, and they had their toe sacks, and Earl was up in the tree with a short fishing pole, and he was shaking the ripe pecans out, so it must have been in the fall of the year, and uh, old man Stone heard him, and he got his shotgun, and he come uh, running off down into the field or in the grove there, and he saw the boys run, Johnny and Polk was on the ground, gathering up his pecan, they run, left their sacks there, and uh, the old man, Earl couldn't get down fast enough to get away, so the old man come down and looked up at him and said, uh, he's quite a little ways from him, but uh, he said, I'm going to shoot you. And Earl thought he meant what he said, so he turned his back and jumped about 20 feet up in the tree and going to try to make the old man miss him. And 
old man shot, and he hit him on the way down. The Earl said, well, shoot you, old son of a bitch, shoot. And he shot him, and of course, Earl, he had his back turned to him, but it was birdshot, and they went in, they broke a skin real badly, and I was at home that afternoon, and Johnny come in first. He got out on poke, and he didn't say much to me. He just run off upstairs where Papa's room was in the closet, and he knew Papa kept his old 44-40 pistol up there, and so uh, Johnny got that and put it in his pants leg, and away he went. And a little while later, Pope come in, and he found the old shotgun, and he turned around and went back. Now, that must have been two or three miles that they had to run to get the weapons, and they got back down there. In the meantime, somebody had called the sheriff, and I think uh, George Matthews probably was sheriff then, and he got his uh, uh, buggy in and horse, and he went out and arrested old man Stone, took him, put him in jail, keep off and killing him, because he knew if Papa found out about it, he'd kill him if he got a chance to. So anyway... They finally got Earl home in a surrey. Somebody went by there and picked Earl up in a surrey and brought him home and put him in one of the beds there. And it was all taboo. I couldn't see him. And Mama was just uh, upset as she could be. And so was Papa steaming. And, and uh, they took Earl's undershirt off. I don't know why he had an undershirt because it might have been his shirt because we didn't wear undershirts in those days that I remember. But they hung it out on the clothesline. And it looked just like an old cow had chewed up a rag and it dipped it in some red paint. It was just solid blood. And... Uh, he got over it, and they had a trial for old man, old man Stone, and Papa uh, agreed not to kill him right then anyway, and they divided the pecans up in the courtroom. But uh, Earl, for years after that, well, these bullets, the little old pellet, would be right under the skin. And, uh, and when Earl would lay on the bed at times, and we'd play a game by popping these lead pellets out of, out of his skin, it would run right to the skin, top, uh, to the edge of his skin. I'll pick up some of the incidents that happened in my lifetime, too, as well as the other boys. And I remember one instance, I guess is after we moved in the big house, after 1912, uh, a boy named Cecil Coon lived down in front of, where the, uh, on Johanna Street, right where in front of where the Methodist Church was then. Mr. Gillis later bought it and, and gave it to St. Ignatius Church. But at that time, it was the Methodist Church, and Cecil lived over on the north side, and he was about my age, about a, maybe a year older. But we run around together a whole lot. We was, we was in Romford, I know that. And uh, Mr. Steiner, who was the father of Buck Steiner and Bernadine Steiner and Joe, Joe Steiner, lived down on Brackenridge Street, and he had a little vegetable route. He was the vegetable man in South Austin in those days. You didn't buy fresh vegetables at the grocery stores. They just handled staples, and Mr. Steiner had him a vegetable route. And he'd come down uh, Johanna Street, and just before we got to the church on the east, there was a little swag in the road, and then you started up here. But he had a little old cart. It wasn't a cord, a little spring wagon is what it was, and he had a table that he put on top of the spring wagon. It wasn't nailed down, which I later found out, but he'd put some little boards around the edges of the table and some partitions in there and in the floor of the spring wagon and had him a little canopy over the top uh, of the table to, uh, high enough up to where he could get under it and, and get the vegetables out of the women could, uh, could shop for vegetables and yet keep the sun off of them. And so... Cecil and I'd always beg the old man. We'd come when he'd come along about nine, ten o'clock in the morning. There he'd ring a bell, the little hand bell he had, like a dinner bell. And the, the ladies in the house uh, houses would come out and shop and, and chat with Mister uh, Stoner and find out what all the neighbors were doing. And so Cecil and I, we'd, we'd beg him out of a carrot, we'd beg him out of an apple and an orange once in a while. He was very nice old man. He he was just fine, really. He was too good to be in in the business. And so. Uh, uh, one day we decided we was going to help ourselves to 
uh, some of his vegetables without asking him. So when he got down to the bottom of this little swag going in the westerly direction, his horse was gone, and he come that hill, he had to slow down. But when he slowed down, I was able to run up and jump up on the little step. He had a little step in the back of the spring wagon that he'd step up on so he could look in uh, and be about head level with his table on, uh, on the top of his spring wagon. And so I jumped up on this step and reached up and got a hold of this board on the table and was going to reach in and get me a get me some sort of vegetables, and when I did, well, uh, the table, the front end of the table come up. It wasn't nailed down, and all the vegetables just slid out on top of me and in the middle of the road there. Well, Mr. Steiner was nice enough not to tell Papa about it. Of course, we tried to clean them up as much as we could, and Mrs. Coon bought all that she could afford to buy from him, and it is, it's dusty because that's an old dusty adobe road, but I know that on account of him being so nice and not telling on me then, later on I was scoutmaster for the troop out there, and his youngest son, Glenn Steiner, was the meanest little devil in my whole troop. And I know that at times I let him get away with a whole lot of devilment in hell because his daddy had let me get away with that incident way back there years before. And P.S. If this is Austin I still 